the disruptors are going to be those that can give intelligence around inventory because if you're in the dot-com space and you don't have inventory intelligence, you're at a pretty severe competitive disadvantage. It's not really an option to be in the dot-com space and not have precise inventory management. It's a competitive imperative. It's not an advantage. You have to have it if you're going to compete with the likes of Amazon and Target. Well, hello there. This is Milena, and welcome to another episode of Retail Mavericks Podcast. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Hivery, the pioneer of hyperlocal retailing. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Brand Elverston, Senior Strategic Advisor, providing upper leadership consulting services in retail technologies, loss prevention, and asset protection industry. Brand retired from Walmart in 2017 after 22 years in risk mitigation asset protection space. Prior to that, he served for 11 years on active duty in the U.S. Army as an artillery officer. So, without any further ado, we'll kick this episode off with Brand diving into what types of risk retailers face most commonly. So, in retail, um, post-COVID, retailers are now grappling with and trying to figure out what, I hate this term, but it's, it's going to resonate, the new normal. We're not going to do things probably the same way we did pre-COVID. Um, and the pressure on the retailers is to accommodate that. So we accelerate self-checkout where we don't have attendance. We don't have that higher degree of human interface. We have mobile checkout where Milena can come in with her smartphone, scan her own merchandise, put it in her backpack, hit tender, and just walk out the same door she came in, never having interacted with a store associate or any terminal, any cash register. It's paid online. Buying online, pick up in store, that puts an immense amount of pressure on retailers, and obviously not all of them have been successful. You're familiar with the business news. A lot of good businesses folded during COVID because they didn't have a plan to migrate from brick and mortar. They could not respond. But those that did, did exceptionally well. However, the challenge becomes in that environment where it's touchless or low contact, i.e. self-checkout, mobile shopping, etc., is the risk for loss, be it intentional or not. Follow this scenario. If you and I are friends and you do an online order through, I'll just, let's say, target.com, and I'm at the store, I'm the personal shopper running around on the floor, I know you texted me, my order number is 436. Well, I elect to fill order 436 for you. I know it's you. So I get all the stuff you paid for, but again, we're friends. So I slip by the liquor aisle and slip a few bottles of gin underneath the milk, the eggs, the bread, and the chips, and whatever else you ordered, or some Crest White Strips or cigarettes, whatever. And at this stage of the game, that order filled simply goes to a storage bin for the assigned time to be given to you when you get to the store. While the technologies in the operational space of retail, in a lot of cases, have exponentially accelerated during COVID, it's been very good 
for retail. It's been an incredible stress test of what may or may not work. So it was a great shakeout, but the risk mitigation industry did not dance well with COVID. Those kinds of solutions are not hatched in the basement of Tesla, for example, as good as they are. It takes time to bring to fruition those technologies that can integrate with the new shopping habits. And the industry at large, so the asset protection industry, is getting better, but there's still a pretty good gap between where the operations train is going inside a brick and mortar. The shopping experience is seamless and touchless. You've probably heard the term frictionless shopping, where there's no quote-unquote friction, to include risk mitigation. Conventional legacy measures that are in the stores and have been for since dirt, the electronic article surveillance, when you walk out of the store and you get embarrassed and the tag sets off the alarm and it goes ding, ding, ding. That technology has been out there since when I was in grade school, but it does not work with the automated and the touchless transactions that are happening today in the stores. There's quite a catch-up that needs to be done. Some retailers do it better than others. Walmart does a pretty good job. Target, you're familiar with the term tier ones. So the big guys that have deeper pockets are going to be able to respond to that. But retail in and of itself cannot hatch those solutions. So it is incumbent upon the supplier community that provides those solutions, the, the artificial intelligence firms, the closed circuit television firms, the automated checkout, risk mitigation technology, and software, all of that stuff has to be brought to market. And I would comfortably say many of them missed the opportunity to join the unfortunate as it was, the COVID train back this time last year, when they really could have gotten a pretty severe battle test and figured out what right looks like. I think largely that industry is playing catch up With few exceptions, it's playing catch-up today. Could you perhaps share an example of Tier 1 industry leader responding to the risks you have just listed? What was their strategy and what kind of tech solutions did they implement? The company Everseen, based out of Ireland, through artificial intelligence, uh, through camera systems, can very effectively in real time notify store associates that Jake Brown at self-checkout number 43 scanned two six-packs of beer, and yet there are four in the grocery cart that haven't been scanned, and he just hit tender to complete the transaction. It can alert real time. That was on the ground in Tier 1 well in advance of the virus situation, and that is a great example of a company that had it right, None of us could foresee COVID. I get that. But they were exceptionally well positioned technologically. They had their head in the game. They had scale. They could scale with the world's biggest, which a lot of companies just can't do it. And it was already proven prior to COVID. And when COVID hit, then, as you well know, all of us know, touchless shopping or frictionless shopping, that was an absolute Pretty much everybody was going to self-checkout or they were standing behind a sheet of plexiglass and looking like they were in a barricade. Tier ones were playing in the in the robotics sandbox for a while simply to maintain in stock. 
trying to take that dependency away from the store associate and say, okay, how do we get our arms around in stock and make sure that when Malena comes in, we do in fact have barbecue sauce or a bottle of wine or whatever is supposed to be there that robots and artificial intelligence and all sorts of technology are brought to bear to help the retailer at the end of the day get better at in stock. As tactical as that sounds, that's a major problem for all retailers. I don't care what size you are. Maintaining inventory and keeping product on the shelf at the rate of sale is a science. That's not something you walk around with a clipboard and a crayon trying to figure out what to order. That is certainly not at big box scale. That's just not a sustainable strategy. So, I mean, the market is flooded with cool solutions. What it boils down to, Milena, is the ability to scale at a price that can be digested by retail. So if I'm Walmart and I'm 4,500 stores and I'm Jake Brown's technology shop and I have a super cool solution that will solve every problem you ever thought of, but it's a quarter of a million dollars to install it in each of your 4,500 stores, immediately that becomes a non-starter at that scale. You just can't do it. So the costs of these technologies, and as you well know, you go to the the hype cycle in technology. It's really cool. Everybody loves it. It's going to solve everything. And then at some point, somebody's got to put a price on it. That's really the tipping point where the retailer really has to sit down with a stubby pencil and do the math and figure out if it's scalable. And when you're a big box tier one retailer, that really can be an enemy to progression of technology. I'm not a three-store chain that I'm like, okay, so what? I got three stores. We can do this. We can have it done by the weekend. It's an immeasurably more difficult in the tier one space, far more complex. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on whether there is a way to address this challenge of scalability for big box retailers. The answer is becoming increasingly internal. Several of the tier ones today are trying to steer away from the reliance on third-party solutions. So if I'm Target, I'm not going to rely on Jake Brown's RFID manufacturing facility because really there are a couple of risks with that, certainly in supply chain, et cetera, and manufacturing. But the push with retail today, aside from manufacturing, They're not going to build their own RFID unit. They're not going to build computers. But what they will do is build their own artificial intelligence algorithms and systems and software. And it becomes proprietary to whichever retailer creates it. And in some cases here in the United States, they commercialize it. So if I'm Target, and again, this is all hypothetical, if I'm Target and I create an awesome facial recognition artificial intelligence solution for self-checkouts to do X, Y, and Z. They do that, they get it right, then they, of course, get patents around it and they commercialize it and sell it to other retailers, as odd as that sounds. In the big scheme of things, it is not healthy for technological improvement if everybody does their own homegrown solution because those solutions are not broadly available to everybody. Walmart is not going to sell their artificial intelligence secret sauce to a competitor, Target. It just isn't going to happen. They'll sell it to a non-competitor 
a car dealership or a men's clothing store or somewhere else it may work. With that methodology, you really arrest the true spirit of innovation because you've already narrowed the application because of the strategy you want to follow to create it. Amazon uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, cloud storage. No retailer will use that because all retailers are a competitor to Amazon. So even though Amazon's got a super cool cloud storage, you know what? There is no way Walmart will sign up for cloud storage with Amazon. It's just not going to happen. In the innovation space, you always want to think about opportunity for everybody, i.e. a broad market of application. That's where the capital flow starts. The odds of winning are greater than losing, et cetera. In the software space, the bigger retailers are beginning to do that internally. That'll pan out, but it's going to be a risk. It's not a win for everybody. So, Brand, throughout our conversation, you mentioned a few different tech solutions in risk mitigation space. Can you summarize them? Yeah, sure. So, Everseen is one. That's self-checkout, point-of-sale risk mitigation, which is huge in retail, meaning the problem is huge in retail. They're the gold standard in the industry on risk mitigation on point-of-sale. You have other companies, APRIS, Retail, it's a software company, and they do a lot of the machine learning to filter all of those points of sale transactions and pick out the ones that require further attention for the store. In other words, it looks a little funny. The guy rang up six bottles of Jack Daniels and then voided eight. How does that happen? Because of the risk associated with points of sale. RFID, while not it's agnostic to provider, Radio frequency identification is used and has been on the market really since World War II in a different form, but retail really jumped on it in the late 90s for inventory management and supply chain efficiencies, so in stock. We were working on that at Walmart back in the late 90s. So now the business case for RFID becomes, hey, you know what? With everything that we do with RFID, we can also find intelligence in the malicious intent, i.e. theft, in the stores. They now can layer on intelligence, meaning I know the items that are disappearing. Today, I don't know that without RFID. All I know is at the end of the year, I do an inventory and I'm missing $2 million in merchandise. No idea. With RFID, I know everything about that $2 million, and I can much more intelligently develop a strategy to mitigate the risk instead of the shotgun blast we use today, which is locking up video games because we know it's a high theft. We lock up all the super cool phones. We lock up electronics. We bolt down computers on displays on the counters. RFID allows that intelligence layer that it does not exist today by item level. RFID falls victim to the sticker price problem. If you're a 200,000 square foot store, in order to adequately cover the risk categories, it's expensive. The infrastructure is very expensive. As a summary statement to all of that, the challenge that I had and all the innovation time I spent at Walmart and working with other retailers through the Horizons Committee, we did a lot of collaborative things in retail trying to address risk is that largely the solutions that are delivered 
get you to a point where they report the problem, but they fall short in helping you solve it. And more intelligently, I mean, more specifically, they lack the intelligence so that the average user, the store operator or whoever, can actually understand what it means. We dealt with DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That's the, as you may know, the research and development arm of the U.S. military. Very innovative. We went to California, Caltech, Auburn University, MIT, all for the non-traditional providers. What we need are those solutions that provide the intelligence like RFID does to say, yes, you lost 25 TVs and here's what door they went out at what time of day. And you can match, match that to scheduling and staffing to know whether an associate was at the door or not, or whether they went out a fire door, or whether you ever received those 25 TVs in the first place. It may not even be a theft problem. It may be upstream that Samsung never even shipped the TVs to you. It sounds like a lot of tech solutions that are currently in use and are integrated into retail industry are, by their nature, descriptive and predictive in some cases. And the next step that retailers are seeking is for solutions to become prescriptive. When a solution can solve a problem for you instead of pointing it out and sometimes even not being able to provide enough details to then help you solve the problem. Can you share whether there is any disruptive, innovative technology solutions on the rise in the space? You say disruptive. I'm not sure that in my 22 years I've seen anything that was, in my definition, truly disruptive. There were progressively awesome solutions that really helped me do something differently. So in a general sense, yes, the AI machine learning, that is a force multiplier, as we say. That's something that really can accelerate everything inside the retail box. It's not just about the guy that didn't scan the four six-packs of beer. But AI is going to be a a huge injection in the retail, at least at tier one, probably tier two, to get back to the focus on inventory. As, As antiquated as that may sound to you, it is still a headline problem, even in the biggest retailers, inventory management. So when you go to Target.com and you want to order a certain blouse or a pair of jeans or a bottle of wine or whatever you're ordering, Well, the store has to know if they have it before they can sell it to you. Well, Target has RFID, so they know precisely what they own in each store with precision. So when you hit buy, Milena doesn't go to Target to pick up her groceries and the guy comes out with 35 substitutions and, oh, I'm sorry, and we didn't have that blouse and that color. And then, of course, you know, that's a catastrophic customer experience and it's just not good. If you don't have that, then you do have those substitutions. You do have the customer aggravations that your website said you had it. I bought it and now you're bringing me a different brand of toothpaste. And when we get into the categories that are have very strong brand loyalty, that's when it backfires. So in other words, somebody goes into to Walmart, they want to buy Tide laundry detergent. I don't want the private label brand. I don't want... Billy Bob's Laundry Detergent Company. I want Tide. That's what I use. I brush my teeth with Crest toothpaste. I use Tide Laundry Detergent. 
when the merchants or those that manage the replenishment fail to recognize just how strong those bonds are to product loyalty, like a particular cigarette. Nobody goes in, I don't smoke, but people didn't don't go into the store and say, well, I just need a pack of whatever. They want whatever they want. Same thing in with liquor and wine. They're going in for Jack Daniels. They don't want Rebel Yell. They want Jack Daniels. The disruptors are going to be those that can give intelligence around inventory because if you're in the dot-com space and you don't have inventory intelligence, you're at a pretty severe competitive disadvantage. It's not really an option to be in the dot-com space and not have precise inventory management. It's a competitive imperative. It's not an advantage. You have to have it if you're going to compete with the likes of Amazon and Target, for example. The last yet unsolved challenge in technology and retail is the scenario I mentioned earlier where Milena comes in with her phone. She scans all the merchandise with her phone on the store's mobile app. So you open up the app and you start scanning. You put the stuff in the backpack because it's not a big shopping order. You go wherever you're wandering around in the store, you hit tender. And in the case of big box, you're not going to hit tender and be allowed to walk out of the store. There is no way for that store to understand if, in fact, everything that person picked up was truly scanned, much less paid for. In my personal experience, without mentioning company names, we failed with that singular problem three times. That is the reason why we could not scale, confidently scale, in putting in true mobile shopping. If you go to an Apple store, that's fine. Walmart has bathrooms bigger than an Apple store, so they can manage it with 10 or 20 cameras. They can manage the risk. You can't do that in a 200,000 square foot store or a DIY in Sydney and have any assurance you're not giving the store away. There is no mitigating, effective mitigating solution out for that. And when I left Walmart, we were in hot pursuit of that with some startups, some non-traditionals, Department of Defense, manufacturers, et cetera. And to this day, it's still unanswered. So somebody somewhere in a garage or a basement is going to figure that out. That is going to be, in your terms, disruptive. That is going to be an accelerator for big box. That is going to unleash a new option for the customer to truly have mobile shopping. Yeah. And the implications on the business side of things are far reaching. You have mentioned earlier that inventory management is a huge problem. And at the end of the day, it affects the bottom line. So by being able to solve these problems, retailers ultimately will protect themselves from losing potential revenue or worse, leaving it on the table. Yep, that's right. It erodes your margin. Everything that walks out not paid for or everything paid for that you never received, that impacts the profitability of the box. So moving on to your newly published book, Proclivity, first of all, congratulations. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. The book really brings together those over 40 years in those two professions. I share a bunch of uh, things that I did that uh, I learned from. I almost had a couple of career enders in the military that thankfully I had a senior officer that saw more in me than I thought I had. 
you don't get taken under somebody's wing in the service, but about as close as they get to it is showing an interest in seeing you overcome. And thankfully, I had that early on in my experience as a lieutenant. Picked me up, dusted me off, and pointed me in the right direction. Same thing in, uh, in retail, in corporate, in a different light, of course. I go through a number of scenarios in the book on that. But the message in the book, Melinda, as we talked, is that instinctive reliance on what you already know is right. The more that I speak to college students at the University of Alabama, the more youngsters I mentor, and I'm a serial mentor, I just absolutely love it. I can't get myself out of the space of paying it forward and doing what my mom did for me as a child, establishing priority and this is what you need to do and sacrificing everything for us. Well, I feel like that that is, it's my turn to write that same check. And the more that I presented to those students at the University of Alabama career classes, various mentees over the years is, it's not healthy. In fact, it can be destructive to focus on these external arbitrary career plans or goals or life plans. If it's not instinctive, chances are it's not going to work because it's not in you to do that. The students, they're all said, okay, so that means I, I can take a year off. And I'm like, no, no, not at all. I'm not saying that. I'm saying quit stressing out about the perfect career plan and start focusing on the person in the mirror and understanding, I got here for a reason. I'm successful for a reason. I just need to polish those skills. The story in the book is those skills have paid enormous dividends for me. I share some pretty stupid things I did too, like all of us. <laughs> we all make mistakes, but you can overcome it. I'd love to hear about one of the bad decisions you've made at the time and what lessons you've learned from it. Yeah, so probably one of the earliest ones. Most of them were not intentional. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to flip this switch. This is what I'm going to do. They were just circumstantial decisions that just turned out to be unwise. As a teenager, so I was 15 or so, a buddy of mine felt like we felt like one summer night that it would be a good idea to borrow my parents' car and go drive around in town. Unfortunately, we weren't the only car on the road. The other car happened to be a police car, and I failed to negotiate a red light. And this is like two o'clock in the morning. Anyway, got pulled over. Police officer, of course, you know, I told him, yes, I have my license, but I don't have it with me. Anyway, he sent me home. We rode around a little bit more and came time to come home, and I rolled up in the driveway, and all of the lights in the house were on. The element of surprise is gone at that point, so I knew. It was not going to be good. And the point of this is, is that my mom, when I got in the house and, you know, we got through all the <laughs> discussion, I'll call it. She never told me that the police officer had no intention of giving me a ticket. So this was about August on Christmas morning. And this is in the book. This is the kind of childhood I had. She had a letter under the Christmas tree. So I go down on Christmas morning, 15 years old. You see an envelope under the tree. What do you think? money. Well, it wasn't money. It was a letter about what the police officer had done that showed compassion, character, those things that we didn't sit down at the table and, you know, have school about these things. It's just the way my mom led her life. And this was an awesome example. I looked at that letter and still at 15, I thought, what in the heck is this? 
but it was a lesson in doing the right thing that the police officer chose not to prosecute, allow her to handle it, but she let me sweat it out from August to December 25th that I was going to be in trouble. I was never going to get my driver's license. All kinds of things are running through my head. A decision like that, I had one or two on active duty that uh, came back to haunt me, not being as professional, as dedicated as I should have been on field training exercises or such. And they came back on efficiency reports later. And it cost me, well, it put in jeopardy my promotion to captain. That's when the senior officer that I just used the example of, he saw something in me I didn't see in myself. I'll skip the narrative that I had with him about it. It's pretty blunt. But I understood that my mistake, that I made a bad decision on a field training exercise, no bodily injury, none of that stuff, just a bad decision. And it reflected poorly on what I was supposed to be doing. And he shared with me how significant that was because the Department of the Army had elected not to promote me to captain on my first look. You get two looks. Anyway, he picked me up. I learned a lot from that. I changed a lot of what I was doing. I recognized I was not anywhere close to as good as I thought I was. And I got my career back on path, got promoted to captain, and, you know, the rest of the story. So... If you would love to get your hands on this book, you can find the link in the description of this podcast. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Certainly, I've asked you a lot of questions, but is there something that you wish people would ask you more often? What does it take to succeed? It goes right back to that instinct of the way you were brought up. The poor decision so many of us make is we think, ah, oh, that's corny. No, that's not. I'm looking, you know, how do I get to be a CEO? How can I be a general officer? And my answer is, the summary of the book is that you have to understand that bad things are going to happen. And it's much more about how you handle it and overcome it than it is the magnitude of the problem itself. And the mistake that we make is we tend to catastrophize and either avoid the situation or we just ignore it. My message to the students is exactly that. You're better than you think you are. You already have skills that you think you don't. But I'm here to tell you that if you go stand in front of the mirror and start doing some serious self-evaluation of what right looks like, you're probably going to find, as the subtitle of the book says, you're making this way harder than it needs to be. That's not an anecdote. That's not, oh, everybody's going to be awesome if they do this. You can't fix stupid, as we say. I mean, some people just who they are. But what it takes to succeed is as simple as understanding who you are at your core and relying on those traits more and more frequently and stop obsessing about arbitrary goals. Because I'm here to tell you, 60 years of doing this, it's those internal traits that propel success. It has nothing to do with anything other than that. Thank you for listening until the end of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you want to learn more about prescriptive analytics of hybrid solutions and how it can help you as a retailer, simply navigate to hybrid.com forward slash products forward slash curate. 
And until the next time, everyone.